1: Thank you, sir. Good afternoon. 5.05, that makes it five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. here on the Wednesday, final day of June edition of Lifeline. Welcome to the midpoint uh, in the week, and we've got a lot to talk about on today's program. We're going to get you a bit of an update as to what's going on with hospice care in the state of California. And, you know, you may not be anyone that's planning on needing a hospice um, care scenario for a long time to come, but eventually, according to statistics, half of us likely will, and as we see the continued grain of America... Um, This is a cause for concern. So we'll get down to some cases in terms of what's going on with the failure of the hospice care system in California. Most importantly, what we can do to fix it. Brian Johnston from the National Right to Life Committee and the California Pro-Life Council will join us to talk about that a little bit later on in tonight's program. Also, I will remind you uh, to continue to be in prayer for the ongoing rescue operation down in Florida. The uh, most recent details to come in. Two more victims have been found, uh, bodies of two children. And um, I understand now the death toll is somewhere in the neighborhood now of uh, 18. And um, it's it's a tough situation. And it's uh, chilling to watch the ongoing uh, recovery efforts taking place down there. So continue to be in prayer, if you would, not only for the families that are wondering what's happened to their loved ones, but in addition for all of the rescue workers that literally are taking their own life at risk in this continuing operation it's a it's a tragedy of of um, just phenomenal numbers and uh, so we urge you to continue to be in prayer for them speaking of numbers some interesting and quite frankly disturbing statistics coming forward in our post covid Recovery, even as we're continuing to try and kind of track what's going on with the the Delta variant and what that may mean to uh, potentially, uh, hopefully not upend, but at least potentially mar, um, what otherwise has largely been an encouraging recovery. But the the numbers in relationship to what's happening with church attendance is what I want to focus on. For a moment. Now we know to be certain many of us that have had the luxury of working from home for the better part of the last 15 months or so have probably gotten comfortable. You're used to having a commute that's only a few feet as opposed to uh, many miles and maybe even several hours to and from work each day. And as businesses are working through the process of returning employees back to the office and um, resuming some semblance of normalcy, as much as there is a percentage of people that are just not eager to go back to the workplace, unfortunately, inside a new Barna report, we're discovering that the feeling is mutual when it comes specifically to Gen Zers and Millennials in relationship to church attendance. And if we look at church attendance pre-COVID to where it's at today, this survey has found that 42% of uh, Gen Zers and Millennials say that they prefer in-person worship. I think, well, that's good to hear. (laughs) But wait, 42% say they prefer it in person. That leaves an alarming 58% that don't. What does all of this mean and what of the the broader challenge that we see today in encouraging young people to have a vibrant faith, to be involved in the community of believers, and to see church as something that is essential, necessary, and relevant? COVID-19 numbers are only demonstrative of maybe a broader issue at play here. So let's kind of peel back the layers of this onion tonight as we welcome to our conversation Dr. Alex McFarland. You know him as a best-selling author, one of the nation's leading Christian apologists. He is the author of some two dozen best-selling books, one of the most recent ones of which is called The Assault on America, How to Defend Our Nation Before It's Too Late. And he joins us now to talk about some of these challenges in relationship to church attendance, the perception that church has amongst young people, and most importantly, what we can do to draw young people back into the faith. And Dr. McFarland, as always, it's an honor and a privilege to have you with us.
0: Well, thank you, Craig. It's always an honor to be with you. I I truly enjoy listening to you. I appreciate the way you think and uh, all that you stand for, so thank you for having me.
1: This is um, this is a tough topic. You know, we've been watching these numbers in relationship to how many people are going back to work, what the feelings are about returning back to the, the workplace routine. Um, and while, the, while there's probably no surprise that there are as many people that enjoy working from home as there are maybe uh, husbands or wives that would like to get their spouse out of the house and, <laughs> and back to work today, right. uh, th- those numbers, you know, they're, they're kind of fluid. But some of the research being done by the Barna Group now, and what we're hearing even from Bay Area pastors who are saying, yeah, church attendance is about 36 to 40% of pre COVID. Numbers, and we're wondering, gee, with the vaccination out there, people given the option if they feel more comfortable to wear a face mask and so forth, you'd think that we would be just absolutely climbing the walls to get out of the house and get back to life, get back to work, and most importantly, get back to church. Where do you think the disconnect is, and how much of this, in your opinion, Dr. McFarland, based on your work with young people across the country, is maybe indicative of a broader, deeper problem when it comes to the perception of the value of the community of faith in the day-to-day lives, particularly of younger people?
0: Well, thank you for tackling this topic, Craig. You know, in the Bible, in a number of places, uh, not the least of which is Hebrews 10.25, the Word of God admonishes Christians to be a part of a local church. That's just part of being a disciple, is to be a part of a church. And Hebrews 10.25 says, Do not forsake assembling yourselves together. And and Craig, uh, you and I know Christianity is an individual thing, in the sense that we all put our faith in Jesus to be saved but it's a corporate collective thing in as much as we're part of the, the worldwide body of believers and we're to be a part of a local fellowship and let, let me say the the Lord knew what he was doing in telling his followers to go to church Now, there, there's some reasons church is very beneficial and we can talk about that but why the Bible is clear on church, but yet our current statistics are somewhat dismal, um, it's pragmatics versus obedience. And, and I think as much as I love young people, I've given my life to working with young people, but young people, even Christian youth, have a big dose of pragmatism. And if it's... If they don't see an immediate benefit. If it doesn't wow me and benefit me in some tangible way, they opt out. But uh, we're we're disciples, not consumers. And I think we need to tell people that um, if if you name the name Christian, you are to be a part of a church. Um, I'm going to make a controversial statement, Craig, and you can respond. But if you told the Apostle Paul, if Paul said how... You know, how do you know you'll go to heaven when you die? Well, because I am a Christian. I've accepted Jesus. But you said, uh, I, I just don't believe in organized religion. I don't like church. I'm a Christian, but I'm not a part of a church. The Apostle Paul would say you're not a follower of Jesus.
1: And I know that sounds controversial, as you indicate, But I I think of the one passage where we're essentially compelled. I mean, when Scripture says, forsake not the gathering of yourselves together... And there are so many passages of scripture that talk about uh, the church in relationship to uh, the example set out, certainly by the disciples, uh, the early house church. Um, you know, re- repeatedly we see that sense of, you know, bear ye one another's burdens. So fulfill the law of Christ, yeah. that value in coming together. And it's almost as if we've taken the approach rather than following scripture and And doing so, out of a sense of obedience and understanding that in the end of the day, God knows more than we do, that there's almost that sense that well, if I don't get a certain itch scratched, if I don't get that sense that boy, this is exciting as going to the rock concert or there 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 isn't the warm fuzzies that particularly for uh younger people that they experience when they're engaging with um uh, media and things of that sort that if it doesn't provide the pop and the sizzle. For them, it's boring, and I, I think that's that's not only a shame, but demonstrative. I think, as you're suggesting, Doctor McFarland, that it really says something about the breadth and depth, or lack thereof, of the faith of many of these younger people today.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I love music, and I oh goodness, I've studied everybody from Elvis and the Beatles and the Beach Boys to so many of my favorite musicians, Craig. And it's interesting, from people like Aretha Franklin to even Paul McCartney in England, how many people said, well, I got my start singing in church. Um, over in Hawthorne, California, where, you know, Brian Wilson, that master of harmony and composition, but they grew up singing in church. And now it's interesting, I, I know nowadays people are very pragmatic, well, Church is boring, or church doesn't meet my needs, or as you said, scratch an itch. But look, God told us to be a part of a church. In church, I mean, we have an opportunity to grow, to serve, to find ourselves, whether it's in teaching or education. I have met many an educator that learn their craft teaching Sunday school or music or even, you know, theater. Or, or leadership. Um, church gives opportunity, church gives socialization, and my goodness how we need that. Not only children and youth, but the elderly. Um, one of the key ways to stave off Alzheimer's and dementia is repeated socialization. And older people who feel like they are not needed anymore, church gives socialization for all ages church gives encouragement and spiritual growth, but let me say this, Craig, and we all need this, I need this, in the local church, there's accountability. You know, there's something about getting up, the discipline of getting ready, and going to church, and, you know, I've had many people, I've spoken in 2,300 churches throughout all 50 states. I've, I've had many people tell me about how they, they almost uh, fell off into sin or got depressed or thought about taking their life. I've had a number of people who said they were contemplating suicide, and they thought, well, I'll go to church one last time, but then I'm going to end it all. And at church, they heard this or that word they needed that gave them a new lease on life. So church does so many good things, and listen. Some churches are big, well financed. They've got lasers and subwoofers, and praise God if that. Uh, as long as they're preaching the gospel, and other churches are like the little corner church, and they're straight out of the fifties. But what they have got is that timeless Word of God, and I would just encourage people of all ages: uh, the church is is. Uh, an essential entity in our nation, you know during COVID the government was trying to decide what was essential and what was non-essential the church is far more essential than people realize and I can prove it, because look where there are no churches or no residue of Christianity and it gets pretty bleak pretty quickly, and so I just want to encourage all your listeners, Craig be a part of church, because the good Lord knew what he was doing when he told people to be involved
1: well, the other thing, too, and then we'll take a time out and come back to the conversation, but the other thing, too, and we can ponder this as we uh, we go into the break, and that is the notion that at the end of the day, uh, the entirety of Christianity really um, pivots on, on, on a, a, a principal issue of relationships. Now, when you think yeah. of it, In the central focus, of course, it is mankind's relationship with God, the means by which for forgiveness and restoration of relationship between the Creator and the creation, God and us, Jesus Christ. And God went as far as sacrificing his only son because having a relationship with us was so important to him. And so the notion of restoration, reconciliation, and relationship is core to the Christian message. So going to church, well, yes, you might enjoy the fancy music, the, the lasers and the wolfers, the subwoofers, yeah. as you referred to a moment ago. That, that can be certainly part of the overall experience, but really the central focus needs to be things like mentoring. Scripture talks about the older teaching the younger. We've lost a lot of that. No wonder wisdom is not being passed down these days. That notion of iron sharpness iron, meaning that two believers coming together in communion, in conversation, in relationship and, and learning from one another, challenging one another, encouraging one another, holding one another accountable. You can't do that from the far end of a telephone. So relationship is central and pivotal to the gospel message, central and pivotal to our relationship. It's at the core of what it even means to be a disciple. And so when we forsake that, it's a lot more than just not having our head counted at Sunday morning's church service. It really goes deeper than that and is going to put the very relationship that you have with God and the quality and caliber of that relationship at risk, because like it or not, God uses other people in our lives to mold us, to change us, and to draw us closer to himself. We'll take a time out. We'll come back to more of the conversation. Best-selling author and one of the most celebrated Christian apologists of our time, Dr. Alex McFarland, is with us today. We're talking about encouraging everyone to get back to church And as importantly, understanding why it is that we really need to be encouraging young people, especially those in that Gen Zers and millennial um, age group, to understand, appreciate, and embrace the value of coming together as the body of believers. A brief timeout and update on Traffic Lifeline continues right after this. And now
0: back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: On the heels of the challenges we've all been faced with related to COVID, it might be easy to be somewhat dismissive of some of these statistics and say, well, it's been a difficult year, an unprecedented year. Things will return to normal soon. But if we're beginning to look at attitudes and underlying um, mentality that relates to the relationship between young people and the church today, uh, there is a disturbing correlation. Between those that have a weak or somewhat casual faith, if you will, and those that simply don't see the value in being involved in church, and I think that it misses an important pivotal point. As I mentioned just prior to the break, and I'd like to have uh, our guest tonight, Doctor Alex McFarland, um, touch on that or, or 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 expand upon that rather. This notion, Doctor McFarland, that if we if we don't see church in the fashion in which God wishes us to see it, and that is part and parcel and and integral to the development of our faith and and what it means to be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ, to be a disciple, and and how all of this plays into the larger relational aspects of life. And instead, it's just something that we do to occupy a couple of hours, enjoy some great music, maybe a little bit of a a a, whiz-bang preaching from the pulpit. But at the end of the day, it's less about relationships when that happens. I mean, doesn't that really suggest that we've got some really big challenges ahead of us?
0: Yeah, it does, I mean, because it comes down to, are we going to trust God, or or are we going to do things our own way? Uh, Do you remember in the Bible how uh, uh, Naaman was told to bathe in uh, a certain river? He had leprosy, and so he wanted an audience with, um, you know, uh, let me think, I think it was Samuel, wasn't it? and Samuel said, you know, go bathe in this or that river. And he said, well, you know, goodness, we've got better rivers than this. Uh, but the question was not which river was it. The question was, are you going to trust what God says to do? I mean, you want the blessing of God's favor, then you've got to trust God for the pathway to get to that place. And with young people nowadays... Um, that, that opt out of church or maybe they just, they don't make time for it. I, I think on the church's side of the ledger, Craig, we've got to articulate really what it means to be a disciple. And let me just say, uh, if we want the, the privileges of sonship, we have to accept the responsibilities of discipleship. And God says be in church, grow. So I think we've got to be clear with what it means to be a Christian. The other thing I've got to say is that part of the church's job in every generation and part of our, you know, the responsibility of we ministers is to tell people about the authority of Scripture. God's Word is the roadmap for life. God's Word, the Bible, is truth. And I think, you know, with all of this, um, gender confusion and our, our moral ambiguity that we're living amidst, um, we look like a nation. We, we look like a country that has forgotten God is the standard, not ourselves. So, uh, the church, we have an opportunity, but we, we really do have a challenge because in some ways, some, some writers will say that we're, we're a post-Christian nation. I would say, really, to be precise, we're a pre-Christian nation. I mean, I, there are there there are, there is a residue of Christianity, and there are still you know millions of believers. But among millennials and younger, the r- roughly you know one hundred million strong millennials and younger, uh, there's barely a measurable amount of those. have a relationship with Christ. So it's not that millennials had Christianity and lost it. They've never really been one to Christ. So in that sense, that demographic is not post-Christian, but pre-Christian, Craig.
1: And I appreciate you uh, elaborating on that because I think it's a critically important distinction and, and for the rest of us perhaps should serve as a wake-up call. I mean, there, there's a lot to be said for the hand-wringing that we do as we talk about statistics and younger people are not going to church and, uh, you know, we, we would like to scold them for that. But as you point out, uh, it, it's not that they tried it and gave up, it's just that they've had very little exposure to it, at least. Not in terms of um, celebrated Bay Area pastor here for many many years, uh, Ray Stedman wrote a best-selling book. My goodness, oh, yeah. this has got to be thirty, thirty or forty years ago. Called "Authentic Christianity," and 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 in the book he talks about this notion that it's it's a kind of Christianity that's not false, it's not copied, it's something that's genuine, real, trustworthy, reliable, and. I think people are looking for that kind of experience in their life. Young people may not articulate it in terms of a relationship with God or even be able to tell you who Jesus of the Bible is. But they know they do know that they do want something upon which to hang their life, a truth that they can rely upon. And I don't know necessarily, and I'm speaking here now broader for the um, the baby boomer generation, that maybe we haven't done such a good job in the role model of what authentic Christianity looks like so that there's a sense of of attractiveness. You know, that passage of Scripture to go out into the highways and byways and compel them to come in. But I don't know that there's enough about the kind of Christianity that those who do know and love Jesus are really uh, living out that seems to be all that compelling. Is that part of the problem here?
0: Yeah, I I mean, I I think that... In, in every generation, there has to be this authentic experience with God that it becomes personal. And, I mean, you read in the Bible, you know, after the great deliverance of uh, the people by Joseph, Genesis 37 through 45, uh, where God raised up Joseph during the time of famine, and, but then it goes on, it says there arose a generation that didn't know Joseph. And the things God had done through his life. And you read in the Psalms when uh, there were captives in Babylon and they didn't know about the time that they were in their land and had a temple. Craig, I I saw, you've probably seen seen online these historical images, Getty images, G E T T Y. Oh, yes. And Uh I was looking through some pictures and there was one, it was so striking. It was during the Dust Bowl droughts of the 30s and apparently it was an, a grizzled old farmer, and he had just this incredible delirious joy on his face. It was beginning to rain. They had had a drought for several years. They had prayed for rain, and in the background you could see this pitiful-looking corn crop, but it was finally starting to rain, and this old man that had been in a drought so long, he was very happy. And this black and white photograph from 80 years ago very touching but here's the thing there were some little children in the photo maybe three years old who had never ever seen rain and for the first time it was this perplexing phenomenon that rain was falling well we we live in an america craig where there there are a lot of young people and and i care about young people i'm I'm with young people all the time. But they've never known America at her best. They've never lived in a, in a in a country where people were proud to be patriotic. They've never lived in an America where they really saw authentic Christian leaders that were respected and listened to. And uh, even if they even know who Billy Graham was, it's just very tangentially... Um, so we're we're like 50 years removed from the sexual revolution of the 60s, no-fault divorce, Roe versus Wade. And I will say this. Um, I mean, if you go from the Protestant Reformation up through Europe and up through the, the Pilgrims and William Bradford and then Edwards in 1748 and the Great Awakening, and then there were around 1810 to 1815, uh what were called the Carolina Great Awakenings and then the Second Great Awakening and then Azusa Street and then Billy Graham and the Jesus movements and Craig there in California. I mean you're you're at the epicenter of where God did an amazing work fifty years ago plus. Um we're on track right now it is right in the window of time for another great movement of God. Now, I don't know. Maybe maybe we've just gone too far, and maybe, um, as the Wall Street Journal said a couple of years ago, maybe the future of America is, quote, a well-managed decline. But, Craig, I believe, because God is so merciful, and God is so wise and powerful, and God is always right on time— I really think, Craig, we are likely near the return of Christ, but I think there's going to be a great global harvest of souls before Christ comes back. And I I pray, I don't know, but my prayer is, if the past is any predictor, that we are on cycle for an awakening. And... It, it may be the last great awakening before the end of time, but I'm praying for the mercy of God to be poured out on this nation because these young people today, they don't know that they've never been in an America where the church was vibrant and alive. So I would encourage all of your listeners to pray to that end and let the revival we need begin with ourselves. I, Craig, I'm talking about me. May God send us. Revival in my heart, and uh, we can talk about, quote, the Church, and and that's valid, but let it begin with each one of us as an individual believer to say, Dear Lord, I, I recommit myself to you. Father God, cleanse me, fill me, use me. And if the revival begins in each one of our own hearts, uh, <laughs> that will spread, and may God grant that it does.
1: Well, I think you're right on. Number one, the notion that uh, we have yet to see um, a a great end-time harvest. Scripture does talk about that from a predictive standpoint. And I think that's still something that is ahead of us. You also point to, and I think we in California... As believers, they get so frustrated with the liberalism in our state and the policies. We're going to talk about some of them coming up in a moment um, in relationship to to pro-life issues as it relates to end-of-life issues. Uh, We get so frustrated with California that we think that God has written it off, failing to recognize that two of the greatest revival movements in modern American history both have their roots here in the unlikely place, and I think God does those things because he uses it to confound the wise, and people say, well, there's just absolutely no way it could possibly happen, and this is when God can step in and say, therefore, the reason why I get all the credit as the Lord thy God, because I did in okay. a place that you thought was most unlikely some of the greatest revivals we've ever seen between the Jesus movement of the early 1970s and of course you alluded to what happened at Azusa Street um, down uh, my goodness 80 something years ago now 90 something years ago practically Uh, I believe it can happen here and I thank you Dr. McFarland for underlying a very important aspect of this conversation today and that is when we speak of the need for revival and for the church to be doing things that compels others to come in and to join us in the body of believers, I'm not talking about the organization as the church or the denomination as the church, but rather the church gathering together. We may go to a building we call church on Sunday, but that really isn't church. It's a building that becomes the church when the church enters into it. And you could almost argue that mm-hmm. when there are no believers in that building, it's just a building. And I'm not saying that to be disrespectful by any means. What I am saying is that the real church, the true church, is not a denomination. It's the corporate body of believers. And if young people today don't see anything about church, the organization, that compels them to come in, maybe because that's due to the fact that the church as the body of be- believers is not, <coughs> is just not living out life in such a way that compels people to say, hey, I like what you've got. How do I get what you've got? I believe we can start living out our lives that way in such a fashion that other people say, wow, you're happy, I don't understand it, where does that peace and joy come from? If we live out life in such a fashion that we'll have no choice but to see people coming and flocking and asking questions and wanting to know who is this Jesus of which we speak.
0: Amen. Craig, I love the way you think and communicate. Hey, I've got to ask you, did you ever hear of a guy and I think he was very influential in the life of Billy Graham, but his name was J. Edwin Orr. O-R-R. He was a Scottish minister, but he taught at Wheaton College in the mid-20th century. J. Edwin Orr. Does that name ring a bell?
1: Very vaguely so, yes.
0: Uh, he, he's very interesting to read about, and he was maybe... Billy Graham said he was probably the preeminent expert on revival in the 20th century, but Orr once said that the history books are silent about the revivals that began without prayer. And so,
2: Mm.
0: (laughs) you know, revival begins when Christians begin to pray. And Orr would take his students to London to the house of John Wesley. Now, Wesley is significant because in the late 1700s, I mean, even secular history books talk about how the Wesley-led revival uh, pretty much saved Europe. I mean, it was... Um, I, I mean, I've actually had a history book that talks about how corrupt uh, many of the clergy had become and just how decadent and immoral, and yet um, the the Wesleyan movement sparked a great revival and Britain was forever changed. But Orr takes students or took students to Wesley's house in London and there's, there's a place in this one room, I've seen pictures of it, where there's these two scalloped indentations in the floorboards. And when people say, what is that? It was where Wesley was, was on his knees in prayer for mm-hmm. like days at a time. And I mean, that's a real discipline. Prayer is, a, is a work and a discipline. But, um, when you're that desperate that you would spend so much time in prayer that it would carve out your knees would make indentations in the floor. I mean, God will respond, and uh, it could be as simple as a cry from one's heart, uh, Lord, save my family members. Lord, Holy Spirit of God, work in California. But may, may God grant those of us that, that love God and country, let's begin to pray. And it doesn't have to be any articulate treatise, just from your heart to God. And, Craig, to everyone listening, I mean, if there's anyone listening and, and you're not sure that you're born again, then, my goodness, I, I want to say with all my heart, and I, I could go for hours on this, but I won't. I want to say this, friends. Jesus is as close by as a prayer. And if you say, Lord Jesus, please forgive my sins, and, Lord, it my life, Christ will come into your life right now, tonight. Jesus will come into your life. For those that are believers, let's commit that together we will pray and we will intercede for our nation.
1: We need to do it, and it's something that we need to take seriously. And as we said at the top of the hour, we look at some of these statistics. At the end of the day, uh, we know how the, how the book turns out, right? We we, we understand um, w- what the future is going to be. But meanwhile, as we see the lives of so many hanging in the balance, even as we spoke earlier about the, the tragic building collapse in Florida, that we need to be, as Dr. McFarland suggested, on our knees in prayer before the Lord. We need to work out our salvation as Paul said in such a fashion that we have the kind of of dynamic christianity we we are experiencing the kind of discipleship that it is demonstrative of a living vibrant relationship with the very God of the universe and when you live your life that way you will as a as an open testimony be someone that will live in a fashion that others will be compelled to want to know more about you, what makes you tick, and most importantly, who your God is. Dr. Alex McFarland, thank you so much for being with us. Information on the web at alexmcfarland.com. That's alexmcfarland.com. I looked up, just here, as we were on the air, J. Edwin Orr. And uh, he was, in fact, one of the original founding board members of Campus Crusade for Christ and was professor of the School of World Missions at uh, Fuller down in Southern California and uh, considered to be one of the, as Dr. McFarland pointed out, one of the the leading experts on uh, modern day, 19th, 20th century uh, revivals. And so uh, much that we can be encouraged by, in uh, not looking at the statistics as a woe is us well gee isn't it terrible but rather to be motivated by this to say let's get out there and change the world for christ dr alex mcfarland information again on the web alexmcfarland.com. 548 let's get you an update on traffic
0: and now back to lifeline with craig roberts
1: That California has an aging population, no surprise there. That we are one of the leading states in relationship to fraud in Medicare and Medicaid, probably no surprise there either. That California has a major issue when it comes to the preservation and respect of life from cradle to grave. Probably no surprise there between our very abundant abortion policies and laws in this state, along with um, so-called right to die that uh, essentially is uh, dispensing of p- with people before their time because they become inconvenient. It's its really sad. Um, what you may not be aware of, that some of these have come together to combine for a very dangerous mix. Um, yes, disrespect at the cradle end of life, but we're also seeing abundant cases of disrespect at the grave end of the continuum. More importantly, or more specifically, uh, people that are dealing with end of life issues as it relates to hospice. Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee and the host of Life Matters heard Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. here on KFAX joins us to uh, kind of pull back the curtain on a startling new report indicating that Quite frankly, uh, I guess for economic purposes, since most of these so-called um, hospice organizations here in California are for profit, that they have been taking advantage not only of uh, benefits for um, uh, for folks through uh, overbilling for services not rendered, to, uh, to Medicare, but uh, sadly, in the process of all of this, not really caring for the people or showing respect for the people that they are supposed to be caring for facing end-of-life issues. Brian, tell us what's going on here.
2: Well, Craig, that's exactly right, and we've known this for a while. It doesn't get a lot of attention, but as you know, I've been involved in dealing with elder care for many years because that's one of the most vulnerable populations, and we know that the purpose of the Hippocratic Oath to make sure that medicine is not used to kill people when they're most vulnerable. And that's obviously what happens in an abortion. That's when you were very, very vulnerable, when you're your mom's tummy, as they say. But the Hippocratic Oath has been violated, and it's really been thrown out by our culture. And Los Angeles Times has reported that now there are 618 hospice providers, in Los Angeles County alone, there's tens of thousands that have exploded on the horizon because if you're a hospice provider, it's much cheaper to start a hospice and get thousands upon thousands of dollars from Medicaid and Medicare if you declare that the patient is within six months of death. There's very little paperwork. Now, the scary thing, and that, here's the scary thing, is that that's the same time frame that those promoting assisted suicide say you have left. If you have that much time left, well we can kill you if you're depressed, if you just ask. Just ask. No, are you feeling bad? Well, just ask. Now the problem is that things <laughs> they found and the, the scam, there's dozens and dozens of scam businesses that call themselves hospices. It's very simple paperwork. And they've built taxpayers out of $7.5 million so far. But the fact is that, that these hospices don't actually care for the patient. In fact, some of them don't even give a medical exam. Some of them have the reports in Los Angeles time are truly stunning. Because some of these are signed by doctors electronically, some of the application forms. But when they've gone back to double check, the doctor says, I, I never signed that. I don't sign things electronically. So there's scammers. They're making up to $1,500 a day, and this is for home hospice. So that person isn't even in a building, and rarely does that person actually see a medical professional. And when they say it's 24-hour service, they have said, yes, it's available by phone. You call them on your phone. So the scam is... Incredible. It's clearly a money maker. But on the other end of the spectrum is the fact that some of these people are ill. And while ill, and that's how the LA Times story starts out, they're not terminal, but they're called terminal. And one of the reasons is then that hospice controls this money. They're removed from their regular health insurance. And they're put on the hospice insurance for Medicaid. All that money goes to this, quote, hospice. But in fact, the way these people get caught is if people outlive their six-month diagnosis. If too many people, and of course, we all hope people would outlive that. But when you have a majority of the people outliving that diagnosis, the authorities start getting suspicious. One of the pressures is to then encourage people. Encourage people if they are medically dependent, if they are alone, it's very easy. And right now, Senate Bill 380 is going to expand the current assisted suicide law so that all of the protections that had been put in it, the supposed protections of having third parties double-check, the the protections of having uh, uh, the lack of of um, counseling. Well, there's no counseling required. There's no counseling required for these depressed patients. So if a caregiver can be convincing enough, and if any of you have been in nursing homes, and by the way, I hate to bring this up, but in California, less than 5% of patients in nursing homes get family visitors. So we wow. have a cultural problem a cultural problem where we abandon those in greatest need of personal care and comfort and it's very easy to be depressed if it's already been decided well this person only has six months left to live they have greased to skids so the fact that the l.a times is investigating and exposing this is very very significant but most importantly we're looking now at a bill It's already passed the assembly excuse me it's already passed the senate and it's going to the assembly and every Californian has to mention their concerns to their state assembly member that this is wrong. When someone is, someone is depressed and medically dependent, yes, they may have an illness, an underlying illness, and maybe it's incurable, but depression is curable. And when someone asks for suicide, we've always known, that indicates this person is in deep, deep depression. And many people have been counseled out of that, have done very well, and many people go into remission. But you'll never know once you kill them. So Senate Bill 380, it's still moving forward, and the fact that the L.A. Times is exposing these false diagnoses, which are being done to bilk both the state and federal government of money in the name of care, it's unconscionable, and thank God, really, thank God the L.A. Times has been willing to expose that. But it's not going to stop what's happening right now, the Senate Bill 380 in our state legislature.
1: It is truly horrific, and I think people need to be aware of the fact that, you know, this might seem those people out there, and we really don't give much thought or attention to the fact that as as this dynamic continues to move forward, if we don't really really seriously address it, it may not just be somebody else's great-grandparent that is being impacted by this. One day it's going to be you and me. And so it is vitally important that we get educated on these topics and we stand up on behalf and give voice to those who have no voice. Part of this is outright fraud, of that of which there is absolutely no doubt. But it also goes to the heart of a deeper, broader issue, and that is the sense that we just don't protect and value the most vulnerable people in our society today. And, you know, it's easy to be dismissive. Well, they've lived a good life, they've contributed, raised their family, paid their taxes, now it's their time. Yeah, it's easy to say that, till their time is your time. More information available through the California Pro-Life council's website at californiaprolife.org that's californiaprolife.org brian goes into these issues in great depth each and every saturday on life matters at 11 a.m right here on kfax and i would urge you to make that a tune-in destination get more information get plugged in get educated and get moving As if life depended upon it, because at the end of the day, it does. Life Matters, Saturday mornings, 11 a.m. at KFAX and online at californiaprolife.org. Our thanks to Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee, for that update. 6 o'clock from KFAX, time for an update on traffic.